This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Right, so we're um, in respect for the people who are here and have their lunches, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, the main meat of the talk is, is more in the middle, so I think uh, the, those folks coming in a little bit later will be just fine. Um, so um, I just wanted to let you know I'm a dermatologist. Um, I've had a career both in academics and outside of academics. Um, I spent my first, I've had kind of three major careers. One was at the NIH. Um, I did basic science research uh, for 12 years there and um, had a good time and liked doing that. Um, then I met a woman who uh, took me away from the NIH and took me to Portland. Um, I spent seven years in Portland at the um, Oregon Health and Science University, so it was more of a classic kind of university professor job. Um, I still maintain my lab, um, but started seeing more patients and more administrative duties. Um, and then the last six years, I left the university and I'm running a clinical studies program now, or a clinical studies unit. Um, it's independent of the university, so it's a business of just clinical studies um, and in that job, it's been a, a fun job because I've been able to, um, to actually experiment with all the new drugs that we have going on. So I perform clinical studies in dermatology products that are up and coming, um, that are in the pipeline. Um, we've done a lot of psoriasis trials, a lot of atopic dermatitis trials, but other diseases as well. And the topic for today is uh, Dupixent also known as dupilumab. Um, this is the first biologic approved for atopic dermatitis. And um, it's an exciting time because re this really represents the beginning of a new era for AD. And um, I'm particularly excited about being here and, and discussing with you because I, I have been involved in the trials uh, for the last four years or so. And I've treated a number of patients um, where you see their data today um, with this agent. Um, some rules for this session. Uh, this is a promotional talk, so if, if those of you don't know exactly what that means, it means that um, for purposes of this talk, I'm an employee of Regeneron or Sanofi Genzyme. So I'm not sort of my own independent um, um, speaker for this talk. Um, as such, the slides are all um, company slides, um, and they also are all approved by the FDA. So if you've been to other promotional talks, you know it's not just all the good of the drug. There has to be a fair and balanced discussion of the goods and the bads, the pros and cons of drug. And the way I like to describe a promotional talk is really to say that it's about the label. Um, so the advantage, um, many times most of us like to see talks where the speaker is giving their own, own slides, but to me the advantage of a promotional talk is that you, you become an expert in the label. And really for the label, for this new drug, you need to be an expert in that first. Um, and so hopefully by the end of today's session, um, you can say that you really know Depixent's label, you're comfortable with everything in there, be able to, to treat your patients, be able to answer questions about that information that's publicly available. All right, so that's a long intro. 
So this is exactly what I just said. Um, Regeneron and Sanofi Genzyme are the sponsors of this talk. I'm speaking on their behalf. However, the material has all been FDA approved, um, both the label as well as the slide deck. So we're going to go through Depixent um, from A to Z. And again, hopefully you'll be experts um, on the label by the end of this talk. Uh, we're going to talk about um, some background information on moderate to severe atopic dermatitis first, go into the mechanism of action of this drug. As I told you, it's the first biologic for AD. So the mechanism of action is not like anything that you've seen for any other drug. This is a completely new mechanism of action. Um, there's going to be no other drugs like it. Uh, we're going to talk about the clinical study designs, the clinical study data that led to the approval by the FDA, and as well as the adverse reactions, safety information, and finally end with dosing administration and um, some practical aspects about prescribing Dupixent. So right from the beginning, we're going to start with a, um, um, a safety slide. Um, and um, the, the main warning here is hypersensitivity reactions. So um, they were rare in the trials, but there was, it occurred in less than 1% of patients who had hypersensitivity reactions. Um, and we're talking also about what the indication is on this slide. So um, I like the indication here because it says for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, uh, for those patients who are not adequately controlled with topical therapies. Why do I like that? Number one, it doesn't define what moderate to severe AD is. It allows us to make that decision. So it's not saying the patient needs an easy score of X or a BSA of Y or they have to have a quality of life score of A, B, or C. Um, they're allowing us to say this patient has moderate AD, this patient has severe AD. And then the criteria for getting on it, there's no step edits here. It simply says patients who are not controlled with topical therapies. Again, this is patients with more widespread disease. A pretty easy indication here to remember is that you think about patients, you've tried topical therapies, they're not doing well for whatever reason. Um, the next step um, could be Dupixent. At least it would be consistent with the label of Dupixent. Um, again, right up front, some of the main kind of key warnings and precautions. So one of the themes that I'll talk about today is the side effect of eye issues. Um, dry eyes, red eyes, conjunctivitis, um, that's the main side effect. The main side effect, the answer to the board question, the answer to your patients, the answer if somebody asked you about this drug is eye issues. And I'll go into details about what that means and what the percentage of the patients are. But not infections, not cancers. And this is non-infectious conjunctivitis. It's more of a dry eye, sometimes going into red eyes. It's not viral conjunctivitis. It's not bacterial conjunctivitis. The other kind of main thing up front is here is that it's not FDA approved for asthma. Even though there's a biologic basis for its use in asthma, um, it is not FDA approved in asthma. So if you get that question among your patients, you want to stay very simply and straightforward um, that is not an approved therapy for asthma. And yes, they still need to continue with their asthma medications. 
And the third thing here is parasite infections. We don't see this often um, in labels for any of our dermatology drugs, but there's a warning here because the piece of the immune system that Dupixin hits and blocks to improve AD is actually involved in control of parasite infections. So the trials were not done in Africa and they were not done in individuals with hookworm or other parasite infections because they would impair the normal immune response to those agents. So fortunately, this is not a, a big practical issue for our practices in the US, but um, I'll get back to that when we talk more about the mechanism of action. All right, let's go now to what types of patients were in the trial. So moderate to severe AD, it's almost like, um, it, some people are asking me, well, how do I define that? How will I know if it's mild versus moderate? I already told you there's no really set number that's put in front of you. <coughs> now, for the trials, there were numbers. For the trials, the patients, for instance, had to have a body surface area of 10%, and they had to have a global score of moderate or severe. They couldn't be mild. But just look at these three cases. And so you don't get an idea for how widespread the lesions are, but in the areas that are shown here, this is, I think all three of these are severe AD. Severe patients when they have lots of redness, lots of excoriations. <coughs> Excuse me. And when I get into the baseline characteristics, you'll see that many of the, actually about half of the patients had global scores of severe, and about half of the patients had global scores of moderate. And the body surface area was 50 to 60% of the skin involved in the patients in the trials. So this is a tough population, a tough, severely affected population that were treated in these trials. How common is adult and AD? So we also hear people say, well, AD, that's a kid disease, right? We don't see that in adults. Well, it's actually pretty common. It's, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20, 25% of kids will have atopic dermatitis. And some estimates say maybe 10% of those folks will continue in adulthood. Um, that still leaves a lot of adults with atopic dermatitis. And one estimate suggests that there's 1.6 million adults in the U.S. alone with moderate to severe AD that are not well controlled with topical therapy. That's a lot of patients. So it's not just a, a disease of kids. Another feature that we see in these patients, and you know this because you're taking care of patients, is that the disease goes up and down, right? It flares. It flares with exposures to things, and then it goes down again. Um, so what we're trying to do with Dupixent therapy is to control disease over the long run, control the number of flares, control the overall quality of life of the patients. I'm bringing this up because when we get to the measures, it's a little different than in psoriasis. In psoriasis, the lesions are pretty static and you see a plaque and it's there and it's been sitting there forever, right? In AD, one day they may be fine and the next day, whoosh, 
You know, they're all red because they've gone outside or they've gone gardening or they had a pet come over to their house. Um, you have to keep that in mind when we talk about the numbers because the, um, we don't have a great measure yet for long-term control of the disease or the um, control that makes the patient happy. So we don't really have good measures for that. It's one of the, the caveats when we, when we share the data um, a little bit later. All right. So um, when we look at the pathogenesis, when we look closer in the tissue of AD tissue, what we see in psoriasis is a very different set of cytokines than what we see in AD. So psoriasis is dominated by interleukin-23 and interleukin-17. And guess what? All the new biologics for psoriasis target IL-23 and IL-17. Well, AD tissue is dominated by IL-4 and IL-13. 4 and 13. Those two cytokines are what we call prototypic, typical Th2 cytokines. And we know Th2 cytokines are involved in the pathogenesis of AD, of asthma, hay fever, um, allergic diseases, basically. Wherever we have allergic-type diseases, we see Th2 cytokines. And that's what we see in AD skin. <clears throat> now, another interesting thing is that this is the immunologic piece of AD. But we also know that there's a barrier problem, right, for AD patients. They, they lose water. Um, things get in that shouldn't get in. And water comes out that shouldn't be going out. But Th2 cytokines can actually impair the barrier secondarily. So when I'm asked, does this drug improve dry skin? Does this drug improve the barrier um, in these patients or the underlying problem? The answer is not directly. The drug is inhibiting Th2 cytokines, which then can help improve the barrier secondarily. So it doesn't work on the keratinocytes. The drug works on the the immune part of AD, the abnormal immune response of AD, and doesn't really repair the barrier itself directly, but can improve barrier by indirect improvement by getting rid of Th2 cytokines. So we're gonna go into now the data. So I'm gonna show you now the rest of the time. Um, we're gonna have the questions afterwards, by the way, typed in like you did with, with Dr. Rosen. So, um, if you have any questions about pathogenesis, the cytokines, and so forth, um, you may want to jot those down now because we're going to move forward um, with the clinical data. Oh, one more science slide. Sorry about that. So I told you it blocked two cytokines, IL-4 and IL-13. So how does it do that? So this is not a great picture, but um, what it's supposed to show in blue is a receptor chain um, on two cells here in blue called IL-4-R-alpha, IL-4 receptor alpha. And that is where dupixent blocks. Dupixent binds to IL-4-R-alpha. And what that does is it keeps IL-4 from binding its receptor and IL-13 from binding that same receptor. So it's a, 
it's a receptor that's shared by IL-4 and IL-13. So that's how it blocks two cytokines, okay? By blocking the receptor that's shared among those two cytokines and keeps those cytokines from, from acting downstream. All right, so now we're gonna get into the clinical studies. There were three main clinical studies. There's been more clinical studies done with Dupixin, and there's much more data in the literature. Again, the focus of today is on the label, and if you're interested in more data on this drug, talk to your MSLs, do literature searches, so forth. But we're not gonna focus on all the other studies, we're only gonna focus on these three studies. And this is the data that the FDA used. Two of them were straightforward trials of placebo shots versus dupixent shots, um, and the patients could only use moisturizers for 16 weeks. Straight up, moisturizer plus dupixent, moisturizer plus placebo shots. Um, two trials, they were both large trials. Um, we call those trial one and two, so or monotherapy trials. The third one, a little bit different, and that topical steroids were allowed to be, were actually required to be used during the study. So dupixent plus steroid compared to placebo shots plus topical steroid, okay? And the other feature of trial three is that it went to 52 weeks instead of 16 weeks. So a little more um, interesting data here, I think, with trial three. What was the endpoint? So remember I, I alluded to, I actually made the statement that we don't have a great measure in the dermatology community. We don't have a great measure right now for assessing long-term control of AD. How do we know, you know, how do we control AD? So the best thing that the FDA has mandated is to say the drugs, drug is success if patients get to a global score of zero or one at week 16. Zero means no disease. A global score of zero means no disease. That, that is success, right? But a score of one means almost clear or minimal disease. And then a global score of two is mild. And the global score of three is moderate and four is severe. So you have to have a three or a four to get in and to be called a success in this trial, you had to get to zero or one in 16 weeks. <clears throat> There's a little bit of a problem with this because it's one measurement at week 16. And so we had patients who were clear, clear, clear for 15 weeks, let's say. They, they have a little flare we score them as a two on week 16, and guess what? They're called a non-responder. Or could have been, could have been clear, um, uh, doing well for a long time, you know, vice versa, and all, all variations of the theme. So you could have been doing poorly, and then you did well on week 16, you're called a responder. So this IGA-01 is not really long-term control of atopic dermatitis. It is what was the patient doing four months after starting on that day 
Did they have zero disease or did they have minimal disease? So it's a pretty, in my, my view, a pretty high bar for success. And then we also looked at easy 75. And what easy is, is analogous to the passes that we've seen for years in psoriasis. So it's a combo score that incorporates both body surface area and the severity of the lesions, the redness, the thickness, the, the excoriations, and the lichidification of the lesions. So easy is more of a complex score. And if you have a 75% improvement in your easy, you were called an easy 75 responder. So the same kind of caveats here. If the patient was easy 70, 73, 74, they were non-responder. They were called as a neg negative, no good. So a lot of caveats sort of in the measurements. We, again, not a great sort of you know, idea of how to assess long-term control. Of course, itch was measured. Itch was the main patient-reported outcome. And we were asking these patients nearly every day for 16 weeks, what's your itch like? So we have lots of itch data with this drug. Um, and we looked for people that dropped their itch score on zero to 10 by four points or more. So they had to have at least a four or higher to be assessed by this measure. If they dropped four points in itch, that was called a success from the itch point of view. And then easy 90 is 90% 90 improvement in that, that easy score. Um, so, and then in the 52-week trial, the trial number three, uh, we looked at the same measures both at week 16 and at week 52. So these are, th these are the scoring systems that the FDA um, asked Regeneron and Sanofi to look at. So I'm going to show in the end of the data now. So let's talk about the patients. So 60% of them were male, 67% were white. About half had IgA global scores of three, and about half had IgA global scores of four. The average easy score was 33. I told you it's somewhat analogous to the PASI, kind of an average PASI in a psoriasis trial is around 20. So this is a much higher easy than what we see in the psoriasis trial. And as well, I told you the BSA was very high. It's in the 50 to 60% range for average. In a psoriasis trial, that's usually in the 20 to 25% body surface area. So a lot of skin disease in these folks. And the average itch was 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10 of the averages, so very itchy as well. So now let's look at the monotherapy trials. This just gives you a little bit idea about the IgA. Um, the pictures are not great, and they're probably not going to be um, projected so well here. But if there's any kind of redness, they get a 1. A little bit more redness, a little bit of induration, they get a 2. Um, again, I'm not seeing this well. I don't know how you're seeing it. But um, I, like, I like the other pictures I showed better. But, um, Global score of three, global score of four. This guy actually has bad disease in the antecubital areas. And that's the reason why he was a, an IgA of three. So here is the IgA 
zero one response at week 16 um, comparing dupixent patients with patients on placebo. In trial one versus trial two, the number is 36 and 38% of patients. And you may say, well, that seems low. I thought this drug was the be all end all helping so many patients. I think these numbers are great, actually, given the caveats of an IGA-01 and how fast the patients can kind of get bad. And um, so this actually, I think, is a high bar, a very high bar, um, higher bar than a lot of psoriasis trials. And we see in the high 30s, patients have no disease or a minimal um, or near clear disease um, at week 16 and a pretty low placebo response. If we now um, look at the easy numbers, again, the only, the only difference between a global IgA and easy is that now we're looking at, we're scoring erythema and, and induration, excoriation, lichenification. So it's very analogous to a PASI, and scores range from 0 to 72. So these things are scored within each of four body regions. And this is, this is a training slide really for investigators to help them um, with the scoring of each of these, of these individual um, items. So this slide shows the percent of people who had easy 75 on the left and easy 90 on the right-hand slide of the slide. So now we see that the bar is not quite as high as IgA01. So we see patients at 44 to 51% of them are getting 75% or more improved by this score. And 30 to 36% are 90% or more improved. Okay, about a third of patients, a third of patients are more than 90% improved with Dupixent, and about half of them are 75% improved at week 16. So now it's starting to look more impressive. How about the itch score? So here's how the patients um, scored their itch. They, they put, um, they, they gave it, um, you know, zero to 10, um, with 10 being the worst itch imaginable. And I told you the average itch before starting was a seven. And these numbers show 36 to 41% of patients that are dropping their itch score by four or more, which is considered clinically significant and clinically relevant. Um, and so th this is also, I think, an impressive number. So if they went from a seven to a 4.2, a four, they would not be considered a responder by itch. They would have to go from a seven to below a three or eight below a four um, to be a responder by this assay. The itch improved quickly, as we can see here in a time course. Um, after the first shot, it begins to improve um, in both trials and ending up in the 40% range uh, at week 16. All right, so we're going to talk some about some side effects, and then I'm going to go into the data from the long-term trial. So I mentioned that eye issues were the main thing you had to um, be concerned with. 
And so the terminology here is a little bit confusing because you had dermatologists, mostly dermatologists, assessing eye disease. And we gave it lots of different terms. And so the way the FDA likes to do it is that they like to use the term that was pronounced by the investigator. So you're going to see conjunctivitis, you're going to see keratitis, you're going to see dry eye, you're going to see different terms um, for the eye issues. Um, but know that they, to me, they all kind of group together under, under eye issues. Importantly, none of this was infectious. Um, none of it interfered with vision of the patients. Um, and most of the time, they were, mild, they were assessed as mild to moderate in severity and did not interfere with continuation in the trial. Okay, so those are all really important things. I did go up in time from week 16 to week 52. We see more um, eye issues develop over time, 16 data versus the 52 data. Okay. So now we're going to go to the, to the uh, trial three. The, again, this is the topical steroid plus dupixent, and it's the 52-week data as well. So here we see actually very similar responses for IgA01. And to me, again, that kind of implies that it's a tough bar to get to, whether you have topical steroids on board or not. So we have 36, 38, and now 39% of responders, IgA01 at week 16, okay? With this tough bar, this really high bar. Now, if we look now at EZ75 and EZ90, here we see a bump. So it's focused on the left-hand side first, EZ75, 69%. So in the other two trials I showed you, it was 44 and 51 had EZ75s. Now, with topical steroids, we're bumping up to about 70% response. So about 70% of people have 75% or better improvement in their disease at week 16 through Pixin plus Triamcinolone. Okay, so you do get a bump here. So you get, you get better than if it was moisturizer alone. And you also get a bump in the easy 90 score from about a third to about 40%. Um, now patients reaching past C90. You also see a bump in the placebo, right? because the placebo here is not really placebo. It's topical steroids alone um, plus pl placebo shots. And then you also see a bump in the itch. You see now about 60% of patients from 40% to 60% now um, having that clinically meaningful improvement in their itch um, when you add triamcinolone to the mix. Um, again, this kind of ref reflecting now that 60 to 70% of patients are doing well um, with a little bit of topical steroids. All right, now this one um, is a little bit confusing, but the FDA kind of mandated this table. And I'm going to pick out some things here. So the first thing in the table says overall responder 
at week 52, the responder rate, and it was 36%. So it went from 39% to 36%. So the first thing I want you to think about is if you graph this over time, you see the line fairly stable for efficacy in IGA-01. You don't see it dropping off as you go out to one year. So that's a good piece of news. It becomes more complicated when you say, well, how many people were responders at 16 and 52? Or how many were responders at 62, but not week 52, and, and vice versa and so forth? And you see it's kind of a little bit all over the board. And to me, this is evidence that this measurement, IGA-01, is not, is not the greatest measurement to assess um, improvement over time. But nevertheless, these are the numbers. And the bottom line is that there's not a big drop-off of response from weeks 16 to 52. That's really the take-home message, I think, from this slide. I'm going to talk now about safety uh, of putting everybody together now. Trial one, two, and three. So I'm going to end, the, end this session, or end this, this section of efficacy and safety and looking now globally at the safety experience of everyone in the phase three program. So there's 1,472 subjects, 1,472 patients were treated. Um, 739 subjects were treated with Dupixent for at least one year um, of this data set, okay? If we look at the all, again, kind of the whole data, the whole safety um, set, if you will. The mean age is 38 years, 60% were male, about two-thirds were white. Um, about, interestingly, about half of them had asthma, about half of them had allergic rhinitis in the trials, 37% um, reported histories of food allergy, 27% had reported allergic conjunctivitis um, as part of their comorbid conditions. So a lot of comorbidities in these patients. The number one thing that comes out here is injection site reactions. If we look at the monotherapy trials, it's about 10% of patients versus 5% in the placebo. Um, with topical steroids, it says it's 10% again versus 6% in the placebo. So about 10% of patients reporting some kind of um, injection site reaction. Fortunately, again, for us, most of the cases were mild to moderate um, and did not interfere with continuation of therapy. And then you see the terms that I mentioned. Here's dermatologists trying to diagnose eye disease. Conjunctivitis, blepharitis, keratitis, eye pruritus, and dry eye. On this slide alone, you have five different terms. And to me, it's kind of one condition. So in my experience, it's, it starts as dry eyes. It can get, you can get redness. It can affect the, the lower lid. Um, most of the time, it's manageable. Um, but that's kind of summarizing the eye issues. And it does go up with time. Um, if you kind of group these things together, the number is in the 10 to 20% range for folks that were in that 52-week trial. So I don't want to really underemphasize this because that's 
That's a pretty common side effect, right? 10 to 20% of patients, you need to know about this, you'll probably see it. You'll probably see it in their patients, you're gonna need to know about it, um, you'll need to be advising them about it. Um, but there's, again, there's other things that you don't have to worry about, like eye, um, like vision changes or something more serious with the eyes. Another thing that's kind of buried in here is oral herpes. And what we see is that there is not really a bump in, um, if you look across the board, in Dupixent versus placebo. And another thing, thing you don't see here, because it wasn't an issue, were systemic infections, bacterial infections. So they're not even up here because they weren't more common in Dupixent patients. And if you think about the mechanism of action again, Right? This is Th2 cytokines that are involved in parasite control and not involved in controlling the common cold or controlling flu or controlling organisms associated with pneumonia. So we did not see those things. Systemic infections as well as skin infections were not seen more commonly in Dupixent patients compared to placebo patients. A really, really important thing um, for us when we're talking to our patients. All right, now this slide just talks about the discontinuation rate due to a side effect. It was actually equal. The dupixin and the placebo rate was equal at about 2% of patients dropping out because of a side effect. And then over time, we see the much more dropout due to side effects in the placebo group compared to the dupixent group. And the other important point of this slide is that, again, from week 16 to week 52, you're not seeing more and more side effects that people are dropping out for. You're seeing more eye issues going up a little bit, but these people are not dropping out over time. They're not dropping like flies as you continue therapy. Actually, you see the dropout rates staying very low um, throughout the trial. Um, so here's some more numbers for conjunctivitis, 16%. Um, and actually, this is interesting. The placebo group had 9% cases of conjunctivitis. If you convert it to events per 100 patient years, you see it's 10 events per 100 patient years for placebo and 20 events per 100 patient years for Dupixin. So this is a signal. It's a true signal in, in my view, and the data supports that in the label. Um, there was no, there was no um, increased rate of eczema herpeticum. I already talked about in, um, both viral and bacterial infections. Herpes virus, uh, I'm sorry, herpes zoster, which I haven't mentioned yet, did not occur more commonly in Dupixent group, there were equal rates of herpes zoster in both groups. And then way back at slide one, I talked about hypersensitivity reactions. Well, specifically, there were two cases of serum sickness um, where the hypersensitivity reactions that were reported, two cases in Dupixent-treated patients out of the 1,400 or so that were treated. What about lab tests? This is a biologics. So biologics, we need TB testing, right? And we need blood testing? No. 
We don't need those things because we checked the blood tests continually and there were no issues with any blood tests. And Th2 cytokines are not involved in TB pathogenesis. So what does the label say about this? The label says that there's no blood test monitoring and the label says there's no TB testing required. And that makes sense to me because of the way the drug works, where it's working. So we did not see issues um, with any blood testing. Eosinophilia um, was seen in some patients, but it's associated with atopic dermatitis. So it was not considered significant enough to um, measure eosinophilia um, in your patients. How about antibodies? So this is a common theme among biologics. No matter how they work, biologics are big drugs. They're monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonal antibodies are pretty large if you, if you think of them compared to traditional chemical drugs. Monoclonal antibodies, when we put them in the skin, um, we develop immune reactions to them sometimes. Sometimes they act like vaccines and our body actually rejects those larger drugs sometimes. So the bottom line here was that about 14% of Dupixent-treated patients developed antibodies to drug. However, only about 1% had neutralizing antibodies that were associated with a clinical effect. So this is typical for biologics when we talk about antibodies. You can't just look simply at the rate of antibody formation. You have to look one step further and say, what's the clinical significance of those antibodies? What, what percentage of patients where it actually made a difference and cleared their drug quicker and maybe affected the response of the drug? And the bottom line answer here is 1% of Dupixent-treated patients. A very, that's considered a very low um, significant antibody level. Um, again, if we um, look at numbers we, um, in placebo versus, versus um, dupilumab, um, and here it, shows, it says 8% of subjects had antibodies, but of those 8%, um, only about 1% were clinically significant, as I mentioned before. And the last bullet, again, I've said before that two patients did have clinical issues um, and developed serum sickness-like reaction, and that was associated with the higher titer of antibody. So you can not only affect efficacy with anti-drug antibodies, but sometimes you can get this serum sickness-like reaction. So, the um, FDA still hasn't quite evolved in terms of live vaccines. Um, they still give the blanket statement, oh, if it's a biologic, no live vaccines. Um, even though everything I just said to you and the basic immunology of this drug, Th2 cytokines are probably not involved in vaccine development, but we have no data. Since there's no data, the label says no live vaccines um, while patients are treated with dupixent. What does that mean, practically speaking? That means the zoster vaccine, right? That's a common one. 
MMR. Um, those of you who have patients go, traveling to Africa, uh, yellow fever is also a, a live vaccine. So no live vaccines in the label um, because there's no data. There's also a uh, warning for cytochrome P450 interaction. This is an enzyme in the liver that breaks down many drugs. And it's put in there even though there's really no data, um, probably because cyclosporin, a drug that's commonly or can be used for moderate to severe AD, um, is utilized by cytochrome P450. And to me, this is a statement as you got to be careful, um, careful about using dupixin plus cyclosporin, or at least they're putting in here as a possible, a possible warning of drug-drug interaction. Pregnancy, no surprise here. There's no data. Um, we don't know what it does to pregnant women. We don't know what it does to the um, unborn fetus. Um, we do know, however, it's an IgG antibody, and IgG antibodies cross the placenta. So if, the, if a woman is pregnant on Dupixin, you can tell her that the drug will cross the placenta because it's an IgG antibody. And it would also get into the breast milk because it's IgG. So caution there, um, really no data. Um, again, you can go back if you're forced to th think about these things, if there's tough dis discussions, um, you, can be, you, can, you can tell the patient about the mechanism of action of the drug affecting a piece of the immune system involved in parasite control. All right, so to summarize efficacy and safety and pretty much everything here, um, we talked about a number of different measurements today. We talked about IgA01 as sort of the primary endpoint, but really a tough endpoint. And those numbers are in the high 30s um, for that tough endpoint. We talked about EZ75. Patients are about 45 to 50% responders by EZ75. And that actually goes up to about 70% if you add topical steroids. Talked about EZ90 as well. Talked about improvement with pruritus, where you also saw a bump with topical steroids. Um, what I didn't talk about yet, and it's mentioned here in one of the bullets, the third bullet, is that we really didn't see any differences in responses based upon weight, race, gender, prior treatment with immunosuppressives, and age. So that's kind of interesting data, right? Especially the weight comment. We are used to seeing biologics do less well in heavier patients, but in, the, in this case, in this drug, we really didn't see differences um, whether a person had been on cyclosporin before, whether they were 18 or 70, whether they were heavy or whether they were light. So I think that's actually good news for us, that if it's a patient, let's say, who's been on Cellcept, prednisone, um, they were, are just as likely to respond to someone who's never been on systemic therapy. So I think that's good. The other point here I did not mention, um, and we're going to talk about now, is, is the drug is FDA approved at a dose of 300 milligrams every other week 
sub-Q shots. The loading dose is 600 milligrams at time zero, and then everything after that, every two weeks, is 300 milligrams. The interesting thing here is that this drug was studied weekly versus every other week. And the FDA chose to only approve the every other week data because they did not see a clear improvement in the data from every week dosing versus every other week dosing. I, I think actually that's too bad because I think in dermatology we need dose flexibility. Uh, to me, there's probably always going to be patients that are going to need more drug and other patients are going to need less drug, right? So we, we always like to have flexibility. But just so you know, there's data out there which is not in the label. I'm not going to share with you on weekly dosing versus every other week dosing. And then safety, again, can kind of be summarized with injection site reactions, about 10%. Um, eye dryness, eye redness, conjunctivitis in about 10 to 20 percent of patients over time um, at the 52-week time point. But overall, the drug was very safe. No increased risk of infections, systemic or cutaneous. So dosing administration, important product information. So kind of wrapping things up now. So there's two shots given initially, and then every two weeks, one shot. Um, it can be used with topical steroids in the label. Again, everything I presented is, 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 is fair game for you. The topical steroids, you can make that decision. You can try it with, try it without, depending on what you'd like. You can try it for a little while and then stop. You can do anything you want, really, with that. Um, if a dose is missed, the simple recommendation is to try to get back on track as best you can to the every other week. The drug is given in the arms, the abdomen, or the thighs. Again, kind of patient choice. Um, if they're finding one area more painful than another area, I suggest moving it around, trying to get some other areas to, to work. Care, caregivers can give it, of course, or the patient. Um, It is kept refrigerated like other biologics, and you do have to make it at room temperature before you give it. Okay? It really shouldn't be injected through eczematous skin. The skin should be normal. Um, that is being injected as best you can. Um, here's where the recommendation is for leaving it out for 45 minutes at room temperature. Uh, that's what the label says. I think, you know, obviously you can try to warm up the drug a little quicker if you'd like, but that's what the label says, 45 minutes at room temperature. Um, if it's cloudy, beware. So it should be pretty clear, so the patient should check it first uh, for a particulate matter. This is what the box looks like. It, it contains two syringes. So if you're giving the first dose in office, you would use one whole box. Two syringes in that box, and then maintenance therapy would be one box per month. Right? So two shots per month, every other week. And then lastly, I'm not going to go into the details, but um, just like all other biologics, um, Regeneron and Sanofi have programs to help us. Um, the, programs, uh, the program is called Dupixent My Way. 
Um, it's both to help the patients and the prescribers in making sure things go smoothly. Um, there's education and nurse support for the patients. Um, there's coverage support. Um, there's patient access support. So kind of three-pronged support system. And again, I'm not going to talk about the details, but uh, know that this program is out there for your, for your systems. And this is just another kind of way of putting it, that there's both patient and provider support along the path, along the journey of, of being treated. All right. So with that, I want to thank you all for your attention. Thank you for being here. Hopefully you found this uh, interesting and um, that, that you find it exciting too as well, being a, a new therapy for something we have not had anything for um, for a long time. So thank you very much. Let's go into the... Okay, so we're just going to spend the last 10 minutes or so. I, I'll also be available afterwards if we, uh, we don't get to your question or um, if you want to ask me other questions, I'll, I'll be available for about 15 minutes outside the room. All right, so if a patient flares while on Dupixent, can POIM steroid be used if the flare is uncontrolled by topical steroid? All right, so this, <coughs> the first thing I have to do is to say that this is an off-label question, okay? But there is some data from the trial. So the patients could be rescued in the trial, but the issue was if it was topical steroid rescue, they kept going on their shots. If it was systemic rescue, they had to stop their shots. So there actually is no data on prednisone shot plus dupixent or cyclosporin plus dupixent because if they, if they had to be rescued, um, they, they had to stop the dupixent shots. Um, but I can also say... Um, which I didn't share, the number of flares um, were in the requirement for rescue was much lower in the depiction group than the placebo group. So I, I think that data should be in the slide deck, but that's another key thing about long-term control of disease is how many flares they're having and how much rescue they needed, and both of those were much lower in the depiction group. So to me, this, this may not be such a common situation. Um, so I'm not going to say yes or no to the question because there's no data, but it, to, I'm going to say that it shouldn't be such a common situation. All right, was the mechanism of action causing the eye issues? That's a very good question. It, it's a simple answer, and it's unknown. It's, there's a theory that IL-4 and IL-13 may be involved in, in tear production, tear secretion. Um, but that's just a theory. And so it's being investigated right now. What's really interesting, though, is that the patients that had allergic conjunctivitis tend to improve their disease. So we know that the conjunctivitis in the dry eye is not allergic conjunctivitis. That's a comorbid condition of AD, and a quarter of patients have, you know, runny, dry eyes. That's not what I'm talking about with Dupixin. That, that condition actually improved in the trial. So we know it's not that, not allergic conjunctivitis. Um, 
Any concerns using the medicine on, in a patient? Okay. So, yeah, there's going to be no data, right? So no data um, with immunosuppressant plus dupixent. Um, I encourage you to probably ask your MSLs or key opinion leaders or folks like myself or other experts in the area if you have such a complicated patient that needs dupixent plus cyclosporin or dupixent plus Celsep, um, there's, it's going to be all based upon anecdote and experience and not anything from the clinical trials that I mentioned. Um, what happens to circulating levels of IL-4 and IL-13? Do they build up? Do they normalize? So I'm going to answer that question by a little bit of teaching on immunology. So cytokines are not so important in the serum. They're all about tissue interactions. So they're not hormones. So hormones are important because they have actions distantly. Cytokines are all about the inflamed tissue and acting right on board. So as we see improvement in the disease, you have normalization of the skin, and, and the IL-4 and IL-13 levels go down in the skin. And they, they don't go up in the blood. It's, you're improving the inflammation locally. Um, so it really is, is not something that we think about. Um, we don't focus on cytokine levels in any skin or in psoriasis as well, um, systemic or in the blood. We think about more what's happening on the local level because that's where they act. All right, package insert mentions oral herpes as an adverse event. Have you found this to be clinically relevant? So. Oral herpes occurred in the trial. The numbers were really low and they were really similar to placebo. So it was like 4%, 2%, and another trial was 3%, 2%. So it's in the label because it was 4% and 3%, but if you have a statistician look at it and compare it to the background placebo rate, to me that's, quote, it's, it's in the label but not everything in the label is necessarily a, a signal. So to me, that's pretty equal to the background rate, the oral herpes um, rate. Tips on managing the eye issues. Um, that's off-label. It's just, there's no, there are no guidelines. Hopefully, there will be a publication coming where that will help you on that. Um, uh, I think... I'm going to give a quick answer and say, if simple measures don't help, send the patients to ophthalmologists. That's what we ended up doing, because I'm not comfortable managing the eye. So in the patients that I had, I just I, I wanted them to have better better eye care than what they were going to get from me. So um, that's my recommendation, actually. Combined rate of eye symptoms in treated patients. So it's um, in the 16-week trial, it's, it's below 10%. It's in the 5%. And then it's, it's um, I think it was 16 to, uh, it's, it's a, I, I say 10 to 20 because it depends on, on what things you include in that. Um, but as high as 19% um, in the long-term 52-week trial, um, some kind of eye issue. And we have two more minutes, so I'm going to stop right now and again go back there. I'm happy to answer more questions outside of the room, and thank you for your attention. Yep.
This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.